This is Tony Silva. And Charles Wiz. And episode 51 of Two Teachers Talking. Charles and I get together and talk about uh, teaching English in Japan, what uh, works for us, what doesn't, what confuses us, and um, what we think you might want to share with us or we'll share with you. Uh, today we're talking about uh, school cultures, uh, kind of that unique environment and behavior set that uh, develops at, uh, at any given school and how, how different they can be and uh, how the cultures differ and maybe how they, how they come about, why they come about, and what it means uh, for the teacher and, of course, for the students. And we're looking today at the students. Right, exactly. How the students differ rather than how the admin differs. Right. Which is, I think, our next episode. Yeah, that'll be a whole other ball of twine. Ah, so you have now been warned. These are balls of twine (laughs) that we're discussing. So we're talking about school culture. So, Tony, if somebody said, what do you mean by school culture in 25 words or less? 25 words? (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to need a couple of more. I need a couple of more. I'll give you 27. All right. So some things are really concrete. Some things are a little bit more abstract and uh, ephemeral and things. But uh, when you teach it a number of different schools, and I've taught it so many different schools, um, you see the marked difference in things like um, the, the student affect, um, the way that they interact with teachers inside the classroom, outside the classroom. Uh, their body language, uh, the way that they the way they enter a classroom, the way they exit a classroom, uh, you know their interaction with each other and with the teacher, their attitudes toward homework, their attitudes toward um, English language study, uh, the way that they uh, think about and talk about their attendance or absence, uh, even things like plagiarism. And uh, those things can be so different at different schools as a package, right? And it makes for you know, these different schools having a unique environment and unique culture. And uh, we'll talk about, you know, the different ways that those that culture manifests itself. And then maybe try to think about where this is coming from. So I don't know how many words that was, but that's what... <laughs> it was definitely more than 25. <laughs> I think it, it I was. I knew I need more than that. It was more of a paragraph than a sentence, <clears throat> mm. but it's a it's an interesting thing um, that in some ways we could compare it to the differences in high schools in America. Is how I kind of cope with it. Some yeah, way. yeah, that's that's a good parallel, I think. Right, because I have this. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been out of the states for such a long time, but I don't know if there was that much variability in U.S. universities. I mean, the one way when you were talking about how students are different, and like you, I've taught at schools of very, very differing levels. And there are places where the students show up without pencils or pens or paper. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've not, taught there. It's not just one student. Right, exactly. It's, it is a culture where that kind of behavior is accepted and in some places almost the norm mm-hmm. and when we say accepted we're talking really that it's accepted by the students there might be teachers who are i guess for lack of a better word fighting against it but let's take a look at that so at one point on the spectrum we have the student who shows up without really any 
intention of being ready for the class. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the other extreme, which is the schools where you have a significant number of students, if not all of them, who are coming to class with high expectations. Mm-hmm. And everything kind of falls somewhere between those two. And let's start off with how has this kind of come about because of the old idea in Japan that university was a respite for your break from all the hard work of high school and the looming 40 years of work that you're going to have to do as basically a salary man or company employee. Yeah, Any that's, ideas on that? Well, I think I think you're you're hitting uh, one of the main causes and factors in this um, and it's it's very interesting because you know that that notion is uh, one of the first as it, you know, a teacher comes to Japan, begins teaching in Japan, what's one of the things that really uh, is it the, your, one of your first big shocks? Because it's so different from what we're used to, where uh, you, you and I from the United States. From our generation. Our, 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 and our generation, <laughs> yeah. That when we were younger, we were so much more polite. <laughs> well, well the, high school, the high school years are your uh, kind of take it easy time that's where you you know you get your you know you got a part-time job uh you got your sports you got your clubs you you're, you're dating and, and those kinds of things that's then our generation and, <laughs> well, that's our generation i was think it junior, was a junior high States. school now has it i think so yeah yeah it's because universities in the states now have gotten so competitive hmm. i think people have less time to more enjoy pressure it that way hmm. but we in and then we got to university then things got serious Right. I remember that high school was, you know, getting ready to go to college, but there was a lot of social life. Um, but when I got to university, it just was ratcheted up to a level that I couldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you had a similar experience, right? Exactly. Wow, this exactly. is this is this is big time now. Yep. Yep. And then yeah, and then grad school was like another huge step up, which you can, that also kind of blew me away. But here in Japan, it's the exact opposite. Um, where in high school, you know, there's even today, even now, um, it, there's so much um, pressure and competition to get into a good university, and we're going to talk about that too. Um, but then, historically, yeah, the university years; these are the the take it easy years. Uh, this is a time for you to develop your social skills, to have a good time, to relax, and um, education, learning. It's kind of secondary because when you "Quote unquote," enter a company after graduation. Um, the the company is going to train you to do what they want you to do their way, and uh, it's almost a convenience if they don't have to unlearn, <laughs> unteach you what you might have picked up in school. Well, I think that's true, but I think that's kind of changed a little bit. What? Do yeah, you think? I think so. yeah, it has a little bit. The demographics, right? Well, that's a big thing that we have to talk about is the declining student enrollment and also how that's changed this the student culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true because you know with the declining birth rate and the you know declining number of students, obviously, and the really inexplicable growth of schools in the '90s, where so many new schools were uh, were built and started in you know in the you know, inexplicably. Um, because that's now, at the point when the population is beginning to decline. Right, right. So right, somebody really didn't schools. do their math there. A lot of people didn't do their math. 
And uh, so, yeah, now we've got a situation where um, most universities, at least the ones who are not at the, at the upper, in the upper echelons, um, are hurting for school enrollment. Um, and there are a lot of people getting admitted to universities that wouldn't have had a prayer uh, of getting into university 25 years ago. Yeah. So what happens is that all these variables kind of add up and create a an atmosphere at a given school. Mm -hmm. And it can vary. I think what you said is is basically <clears throat> that there's this like kind of um, vacuuming up from the bottom towards the top mm -hmm. so that what would have been at one level is now moved up to the next level. And then there's a dilution at the top, I think. But this is what people say, but I think this has been going on for generations and generations. This added this feeling that, right, it was so much more rigorous when I was a student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I'm not sure about that. But what we do have is, incre I think, an incredible amount of variation between universities in terms of what's really going on. And I think there might be built into this, I, this, I'm kind of at a loss for words here, what a pleasant surprise, <laughs> <laughs> is that we have to talk about how the Japanese education system works. And it's not that your entrance exam for college is what's determining your future, but that when you go from elementary school, a lot of students are testing to get into a junior high school. And the criteria for choosing which junior high school to get into is which junior high school f has the highest success rate for entrance exams for getting into a good high school. And the criteria for which high school you choose is which school gets people into the best college. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the student culture for a university is almost being decided as soon as the student is getting into junior high school, because that's having such a massive effect on their future and where right. they're going. And I and you know that, go ahead, Tony. Oh, oh no, I'm just going to say that that gets amplified at, at a lot of universities because they have um, their uh, own little um, feeder schools and uh, they've got their own junior high school and their own high school and then a university. So that system. So those students very often come a disproportionate number of students get into the university from those those particular schools and that contributes to a much more cohesive culture so if that university has a junior high school and a high school then certainly the that is going to impact the nature of the student body at that university right and for those people who don't know this is that for example you could have a university and there's some famous universities that also do this where it's from kindergarten elementary school, junior high school, high school, all the way into the university. And if your child is enrolled in the kindergarten, then all you have to do is continue paying tuition, right? The student is guaranteed admission to the next level. And that student, regardless of their academic ability, can get into the university. And what happens in that junior high school and that high school, especially is going to really impact um, the way those kids are at university in the university okay so we have a range of cultures here let's do you think we could create like you know um, stereotypes of the kinds of students we're talking about you know literally characters but I mean kind of general profiles that um, would help listeners understand what we're talking about 
Okay, let's, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I also, before we get into that, I just want to talk about, mention that it's it's more than just um, English language level, and it's more than general academic ability. Uh, it's it's That's part of it, but it, it's much more than that. So I've got students who uh, are quite capable, um, but in terms of their attitude and behavior can be quite different from another school where the students of equal ability behave in a very different way. So um, on the one hand, you've got, uh, I think you mentioned, yeah, that the, 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 the student, the stereotype, the kid who shows up, uh, no, no textbook, no paper, no pencil, maybe a, a tube of hair gel or something, and um, kind of come, walks into your classroom and plops down and maybe puts his head down on the desk and goes to sleep. Okay, so that's... You know him. <laughs> that was me. No, seriously. Uh, no, it's definitely not with the hair gel, but... Okay, so that's pretty much at one level, one extreme. And at the other, you've got a student walking in, you know, big smile on her face, you know, good good morning, sensei. What are we going to do today? <laughs> um, I have a question know. about the reading. <laughs> like that, like yes. that. Okay. Like that. So it's easy to go through the extremes, but maybe we can get a little bit more, you know, finer granulation here. Okay. So those are the two extremes. What about the middle? How would you describe that middle kind of average kind of student um, type as represented by a school? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't know how close I'm able to get to what the average is, because these days I'm pretty lucky and the schools that I'm teaching at are the students that I teach are all pretty good but um, I think one maybe dividing line or one like little uh, little data point um, I remembered in my transition from you know schools that were less pleasant to teach at into the places that I'm at now nicely said remember <laughs> remember I remember the first time when a student, got up to not a student but this was a number of students at this particular school it was the first week at the end of class students leaving the classroom coming up and saying thank you at the end of class i think i have vague memories of that yeah well it it, <laughs> I, it i'm i am very fortunate in that is that is not an unusual occurrence so i'm not I don't know that I have a lot of experience these days with the average cuz i don't think that that's average but I think that might be the dividing point. I don't know. What do you think? Mm. Well, I'm kind of in the same boat as you are, that I've been teaching at pretty pleasant places with <clears throat> interesting students who are interested in learning and have had positive learning experiences. And I think that that might be the dividing line that I would use, is that mm. there are students who have found learning to be pleasant and interesting, and there are students who have found that learning or learning inside of school has been unpleasant mm. and i think that's where i would you know kind of set this arbitrary mark um i think that there's big differences uh, in the schools with manners for example mm -hmm. how you as you said how do you interact with the the instructor in the classroom and that seems to be pretty consistent in schools that right you you don't interrupt, you don't fall asleep, or you you don't text while in class. I've noticed that there's that kind of difference. So I think 
maybe again another dividing line might be how much the students adhere to my conception of what's acceptable behavior in the classroom and what's not but again we're both in the position of having kind of graduated from those universities mm -hmm. so except for one place that i i teach part-time right now mm -hmm. but that's really been a challenge where <laughs> that's why this topic maybe is coming up mm. okay mm. but what do you think's happening on that student side so the students have a certain set of beliefs or expectations what mm -hmm. do you think it is do you think it's expectations do you think it's beliefs do you think it's um something that's actually conferred by the university that it's understood do you think that somebody actually says to them hey guys we just want you to know it's a four-year break in your life take it easy don't worry if you don't study your teachers are going to pass you or just if that it's not the case then how is that being you know delivered to the students well when i look at individual students i think a big part of it comes from uh, what they what their high school experience has been uh, and again, like if they're coming from the same kinds of high schools, then you're going to have that same kind of culture at the university. I think it might, I, I don't know that, uh, I don't, and I'm going to get to a concrete example about, I know that some of it does come from the university itself. Um, and I don't think that it's direct. Uh, I think it's indirect and, uh, uh, unconscious subconsciously but there are attitudes and priorities and values that do get communicated to the students um if not in when an orientation or a, a guidance session from their other teachers uh maybe from major advisors but um and, and the example i'm thinking of is uh, uh this is, a, this is a, a medical school that i taught at and medical school so that you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great medical school um, but the students were certainly capable and they were pleasant but in the few years that I was there talking with the students um, what they would communicate to me that yeah um, they have been told that this was only English that um, the the German was their primary second language and that not to worry about the English so much. And I can certainly, under, you know, of course, you know, there were historical reasons for that. Um, but that Are was there case... only historical reasons for that? Right, currently. right, right, right. And, but, but that, that's one concrete example where I know that that was coming from the university. And I, when I had some small classes there where I was teaching internet English, uh, there were some really, um, uh, wonderful students and very engaged and pleasant and just a joy to teach except they had this thing and i what they had there that was from the university that was from other teachers there hmm it's interesting i think i've experienced it from the other side mm. where i remember a fourth year student was taking one of my classes and had not done the work and I realized I had to fail the student and I think that the number of units she had was going to be affected and was going to be going to be unable to graduate if I failed the student so I went to somebody because I was new at the school and I asked them what should I do because there's often that's part of the school culture on the admin side which we'll get into 
in another episode, but this professor said, did the student do the work? And I said, no. And the professor said, then you fail them. And that's an understood value at some schools. Students know that if they don't do the work, they are going to fail and that classes are serious. But I've never kind of heard of a direct example like yours. Hmm. I think that's always gone unstated. <clears throat> yeah. Kind of in the background. So that's interesting. Mm. And uh, I think the other thing that um, I think both we need, both no, not only the listeners, but I think you and I need to remind ourselves uh, something about Japanese society, um, the the importance to the to the student of what they hear from their uh, upperclassmen, their senpai. Mm. Um, I think a lot of that uh, information, direct and indirect, gets passed down, and in, in various settings. I, I think that they have. Uh, sessions, meetings, so forth and so As on. As do the do previous it. tests, copies of the tests. <laughs> like that, like that, like that. So there's a there's this other network that goes on where things are, are communicated. And along that, where there's added what's acceptable, what's okay, what's not okay, and, you know, do is, you know, follow me kind of thing. Right. And on that note, too, it's really important to point out how club activities are not only an essential part of the student experience, but in many ways a required part mm -hmm. of the student um, experience. Again, going back to that, what is it they're supposed to learn? The academics kind of take a back seat to that socialization process. Right, exactly. And that it's for them to develop connections and contacts. And in, it's a rare student who is not a member of a club. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember any club that I joined when I was in the university. Oh, correct. Yeah, same. Right. Same. I just would just know I had it's not part of what I'm doing. <clears throat> so these the social side of the university experience is very important and is also emphasized by schools. I think to some degree. Sure. For example, I was told once that I should not try to schedule any kind of makeup or additional, you know, for example, tutorial to help students during lunchtime because that would negatively impact on their club activities. Mm -hmm. so, was... so those those kinds of things so exactly something like that mm. uh, the students pick up that this from the institutional culture that this this is what the this is what the priorities are and that gets interpreted and applied and has effects all the way down the line and you know in aggregate it can make a really big difference in what the place is like hmm and uh, another, like, you know, I know you'll like this example, um, but again, it's totally unrelated to to academics. Um, the way that the, the students will interact with teachers outside of the classroom, and you know that there are students that you, you, you you've taught them for a whole year, you've looked them in the face, they've looked you in the face, and you they they see you outside the class, and there's zero recognition. No, I've never seen that before. Oh, really? I thought I thought you told me about it. I thought you told me. No, that, no. So I'm just that, laughing that, because that, oh. it's, it's an amazing thing. I think every teacher I've ever spoken to who's taught in Japan comments on that. And but and but that's their institutional patterns. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, this is, may get me into trouble. Um, and I teach at another school. I'm teaching this school right now. And the students that I taught last year, we meet in the hall. They hug me. 
Silence. <laughs> <laughs> and you get that kind of extreme. And it is institutional. Yes. It is the difference. It's not, it, it, you know, of course, there are individual differences from one student to the other. But the pattern is specific to the school. It doesn't happen at other schools. The, the, the being ignored doesn't happen at other schools. Um, what is it <laughs> that accounts for that difference? I'm the same teacher. I teach the same way, <laughs> the same kinds of classes. Um, what accounts for such a different reaction from students in one school to another? It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I, I think about it all the time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that there's variation between the schools, but there's also variation between the faculties at schools too. Mm-hmm. Right, that huge. Yeah, between if you teach in one faculty and then you teach in another faculty, you see that there is differences in students. So it's just not one monolithic kind of situation. But mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. know what you mean about the, for example, students hugging. Um, I went to, I was asked to help out at one school. They had an emergency situation and they needed somebody to teach a couple of classes. And I went there and the way the teachers interacted with the students was a lot of high-fiving, um, a lot of kind of um, what I call that over-exaggerated teacher voice mm-hmm. of, hey, how are you? Everything's going great, right? And I wasn't used to that. I was used to more the kind of more, I guess, the more serious kind of teaching. And that was very present at that school. Most of mm-hmm. the teachers were interacting with students that way. The students were responding. And, of course, I was the grumpy old guy there, you know, who was <laughs> not doing that. Um, and then I went back to my school where there was none of that. And it's was like, yeah, you're right. What's accounting for this? Because it seemed to be pervasive amongst the student population. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an interesting question as to why there would be certain types of behaviors that seem to permeate at a school and to be shared between students. And then you go to a different university and it's not the same yeah. way. Yeah, yeah I, think a, I think a big part of it is, you know, which high schools that students come from, which, uh, which high schools the, the university recruits from. Um, what kind of you know reputation of the school and what kind of student uh, the the school attracts, but I think also part of it is you know happens after the students are admitted, um, and it's that um, kind of that imprinting period maybe in the beginning of the school year and what their other teachers are like. Just like you said, you notice that all oh, these teachers were doing it you know interacting with the students in a in a different way than than you were used to. Um, uh, yeah, the students kind of pick that up from those teachers, possibly. Um, yeah, but um, and also, as you said, the the, the major the, the students in different majors will also uh, be quite different in, in personality in class. And, and also from class to class, classes, even the same school, same major have very different right. personalities. So I think that what you have is you have variation between universities and then you have variation within the universities mm-hmm. as well. And you can get colored by which one you're teaching in, right? So mm-hmm. if you teach in one boon, you might have you know one faculty. You have a certain perspective on the students. And then you talk to or you go to a different faculty and suddenly it's it seems like totally different universes, different worlds. But Yeah, and it's the kind of thing maybe... <laughs> 
somehow that we ourselves uh, unconsciously are contributing to these differences in the cultures. Well, that's what I wanted to get to next, which is, you know, what do you do when you go to work or are asked to teach at a university where that has a culture that doesn't resonate with you? Mm. Because I think I have the same expectations in all my classes. You know, this is my job. I'm here to do certain things to help you learn. And I'm going to do it. And, oh, um, that's going to get you into trouble, isn't it? <laughs> I've never been in trouble in my life, Tony, so I don't know what that means. What, what's trouble? How do you spell it? Yeah. Fortunately, I think we're both in a situation where we don't get into trouble for that too much. Mm. But well, I think, and I, I think, even though I think we say that we go in there with the same expectations, I think we both know enough that at some schools you're going to have to tweak things a bit. You're going to have to realign expectations and uh, the way you do things because yeah, some places, you know, require different approaches. You know, students just require a different, whole different way of doing things. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kind of laughing, kind of going, yeah, busted on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you've said it best. And I, I think the question really is, is how do does a teacher maintain that commitment to learning if they're at a school that does not have a culture of learning? Mm-hmm. How do you not, so does, I guess, get disenfranchised from your goals of being an educator mm-hmm. i mean that's making it really concrete but we should talk about that because we're talking kind of abstractly what do mm-hmm. you do when someone if you're in japan and you accept a position at a university you go in and you find out that the university the students just are there they're biding their time and they don't have the attitude towards learning that you, let's say, are used to or you're expected. What should the teacher do? How do you deal with that? How does uh, someone cope with that? Well, number one, you have to be aware that this is going to be a whole lot more work. <laughs> it's going to be a whole lot harder because... Um, uh, your preparation has to be much tighter. You, 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 yeah, re, every aspect, every aspect is going to be more difficult, and it's going to require a lot more work you inside the class and outside the class. The energy expenditure is going to be much higher. Um, you're going to have to bite your tongue a lot more. Um, you, your tolerance has got to go. Your patience has got to go up. Um, and uh, you, you notice that, I think, well, I don't know. You notice it both ways, when, you, when you're going down or when you're going up, because... You know, moving up from those types of places, you, you walk into a, a place that's, you know, much more education uh, oriented or open. And it's like, man, this is a, this is this is wonderful. I didn't know places like this existed. Um, you also notice that when you go down and you get used to that other kind of school and you come down to places where talking where the kids are just biding their time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it takes, I think. uh a huge adjustment of expectations, not in terms of, you know, like you just said, being an educator, educating, but exactly what your goals are going to be, what your product is going to be, and and what you're going to be able to do with, with these kids. And 
yeah, I mean, major adjustment. And just you have to accept that, yeah, these kids are not going to do what the kids, your Tuesday kids do. You know, your Wednesday kids are not your Tuesday kids. And everything about your Wednesday kids has got to be different. And you've got to kind of figure out or let them teach you how they can be or need to be taught. Uh, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, I think that I would start off with, it's not quite as concrete as I'd like to be, but it, what I've kind of readjusted to this semester is that at some schools, and let's call it the, the, a lower level school, for lack of a better word, or a school where the students are not so oriented towards learning, is that the students do have a lower tolerance for boredom in a certain way. And what I mean by that is that they don't understand the payoff of a certain activity that might not be interesting, but that will benefit them in a learning um, outcome. And that's the first thing I've had to change, which is, okay, my students are not going to understand immediately how this activity is going to benefit them. And then I have to tweak that and modify it so that it's more gamey. I think the first thing yep. is that I'd say to people, if you're going into one of these situations is you have to gamify everything. Yep. Everything has to be turned into some kind of game activity yep. because the students are not going to respond positively to a sit down, focus and do this activity. Yeah. You got to, uh, you got to make it, you got to make it quote unquote fun. You've got to make your uh, activities uh, much more structured, step by step. You've got to make them shorter. Mm -hmm. um, you keep, keep, uh, increase the pace. So it was one of the uh, ordinarily you might have do me two things in your class, and they're kind of open, and the kids are, can be trusted to go ahead and explore and work on their own and do things and interact with uh, other classes. Nope, fifteen minute shots. Oh, concrete objective okay done next concrete objective done next um and you know whether you know it's fun or not but you intersperse the two you know as you said gamify it uh that structure and that pace is the way to keep them engaged and uh you know awake <laughs> right. i also think the parameters of the activity have to be narrowed down and limited yep. more because the students at with less motivation in or in a situation where it's a university that doesn't have such a commitment to learning they will move into japanese much more quickly than mm -hmm. students who really want to learn and you have to to achieve that you have to shorten the activity and create a couple of variations but it's Fewer options. Fewer options, right? And um, there's less, uh, I guess, play within the activity. And what I mean by that is that the students really do have to stay on a certain track so that they can use the language that they have before yep. the because they will. I found that's one of the big differences is they will just go into Japanese right. as soon as they can't say anything. As yep. soon as there's a little bit of a bump in the road. They go to Japanese, whereas, you know, the big difference there is that at another school, the students will struggle with the English, try to find the way out. Mm -hmm. So those are some things you could do. What, what else can a teacher do in this situation? Well, I think picking up the pace is a, is a big thing because uh, with these students, yeah, the attention span is generally really short. 
um, they're not going to be able to handle something that's long. You really need right. to. They can't see to, the payoff. Right. And they can't even hold the concept of the a, a longer uh, multi-part activity in their head. You know, and you might have a, you know this great activity that works somewhere else, but with these kids, you just need to break it into pieces. Okay. Ordinary is you okay? You, you need to do A, B, and C, and then you know, I'll, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll check and see what you've done. With these kids, okay, we're gonna do A. Okay, everybody's got A. Now we're gonna do B. Okay, and now we're gonna do C. Mm -hmm. Because the when if they if they're looking at that A, B, and C, they're gonna get halfway through A, and their their mind's just gonna drift right away. I'm sorry. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. Is that you're looking at students who people would say have shorter attention spans. Um, yeah. There seems to be some interesting research that they they also might have um, not as well developed working memories. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I would add to that, Tony, other than by having these kind of quick, very focused activities, is there has to also be an emphasis on learning and study skills. Mm. That these we that you're looking at students who don't know how to learn or yes, don't know how to study a huge or, thing right they've mm. don't know so that part of your class also has to have some study skill learning skill component for example learning how to take notes and then you have to create some system so that there's a motivation for the student to take notes so for example in this situation one way is to have students take notes, but then tell students that the notes will be are the student notes can be used in a quiz. But the flip side of that is in what happens is you give the students the quiz and you realize everybody has the same notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one thing too, and what I'm going to run with that last comment is not only do we have to gamify the classroom, but you have to understand too that for these students, they're trying to game the system and that for them they're trying to find a way to get through the class let's say because that's just you know how they don't see it as a positive experience they're not used to being in a classroom and having fun and learning and growing so that you have to take that and use it to your benefit so right, you actually have to make it make the choice to do the schoolwork the easier of <laughs> of two routes, right? You've got to you got to it's make easier it to, to do the make, tasks make the than it is to game them. the system, right? Exactly, and that's a very hard thing to do, by the way, without creating simple tasks. Right, that's the key. Is that you have to really juggle that, and I still have trouble with it. But one of the things I've found that really works with students um, is if you can somehow come up with, let's say, an actual American TV show about Japan, for example, and prep them enough in a way that they can understand it because they have the background knowledge, let's say, they already understand Japan, and then give them some tasks that they can achieve. For example, identify the name of the person, what's the name of the show, and start building a confidence. That also helps kind of torque them, so to speak, over to the side to do a little bit more work. But that's, again, 
you can compare doing that in a class where students really want to learn versus a class where students don't. Those are very, how you set those activities up is completely different. And in the situation where you're in the school where there's not a commitment to learning, the amount of prep time for an activity like that is just double or triple, I think. Yeah, as I said, it's so much work for, for these types of classes. And I think the other thing that um, I think is worth mentioning, even though <clears throat> again, you, you mentioned it a little bit, but I'm going to underscore it. Um, two parts to the same thing. One, very, uh, you have to be very clear at the very beginning about expectations, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and to communicate in, that in a way that's not going to turn them off. Because, as I mentioned um, a show or two ago, uh, I have um, in in two of my classes two different students who, you know, watching them, you know, their behavior in the first couple of weeks of class really don't know or didn't know what it meant to be in in a class. They didn't know what they were supposed to do, and they we talked about like school culture. In each class, they kind of stuck out. Uh, they were not the same you know which of these is not like the others and it's like bingo that's her <laughs> um and it's been very interesting to watch um and i don't know what's happening in the other classrooms right because that's another a big part of it but interesting to watch you know when they were n not fitting in um their own self-awareness of that and to a certain extent the peer pressure uh for each of them to conform to the kind of the standards of the classroom. Um, and I, for whatever reason, I'm lucky enough, I didn't screw it up. I didn't make it worse because I did actively, you know, talk to each of these uh, kids. And it seems to, something seems to have worked, uh, whether it's, you know, their their peers or whether it's me or whether it's some other teacher that, you know, read them the right act. I don't know. Um, but it's been interesting to, interesting to watch their progress and to see how they have little by little learned what it is that they're supposed to do. But it, it speaks to what uh, you said just a little while ago about them not knowing what to do and the importance of those study skills at the very beginning. Um, uh, my wife, Allison, has done... Uh, some research on this. Her term for it is um, front-loading, preloading, mm -hmm. um, but in um, trying to institute some of that at, at her university, because at that university there are so many kids who don't get it, and that's one of those. That's also one of those schools that suffers from uh, um, its own feeder schools, which is a big part of that problem. Um, but a lot of those students don't ha have an idea of what to do in a classroom. Now I've had kids in that, at that school, um, sitting on the floor at the beginning of the first day of class, right. And sitting on the floor, talking to each other, bell rings, I start talking, their conversation doesn't stop. And then, you know, I, I call them on and, you know, you know, quite interesting. what, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? And they're shocked that I'm, they don't know, they don't know what they've done wrong. They didn't know that this was not acceptable behavior in a university classroom. They just didn't know. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine. It, it, we don't even want to accept it, the idea that how could this be? But it is. And kids like that need 
go back several big steps and say, okay, this is a university classroom. This is how it's going to work. Bud. <laughs> but. <laughs> and then there's the elephant in the room, which is that the expectations that foreign teachers bring into the classroom, I think, can somewhat differ from the expectations that the Japanese professors are bringing into the classroom. Mm -hmm. Big one, big one. Right. For example... Um, yeah, we've all had that experience of walking past a, uh, a classroom. And seeing stuff a... that just would not be tolerated <laughs> by us. You do a, yeah, you do the double take, right? You walk past it, what? what did I just see? You, you, step, you take a couple of steps back and poke your head in there? It's and like, that, unbelievable. What, what always surprises me, it's not what the students are doing, it's the fact that the professor is not marking the behavior. Yes! It's, it's yeah, just, and there's, yeah. It, it's insane. It's like it, you, in the front of the room. There's a there's a professor reading a book, a loud voice. Um, there's maybe twenty five percent of the, the class is listening. Half in the back are heads down on the desk asleep. Um, the other groups are you know they're on their phones or doing whatever they're doing. Professors doesn't. It's another world. It's like just a different universe. It's, it's yeah. It, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting again how different it can be. And we're talking about student behavior and how students don't know how to act in the. You were saying that students don't know how to act in the class, and I think that's something I have to remind myself that the students just they don't know what's required. So, for example, um, at the one place that I'm working part time. Um, that when students yawn, they make no effort at all to cover their mouths. <laughs> are we gonna make? Are we gonna go through this list now? Because <laughs> well, I'm thinking. Oh, of, there's so like, much example, of that. There's so much of that. It's a lack of you know. And that, not only is it like um, lack of preparedness for you know university, but it's just a whole. And this is this is also a fact. I mean, it's like social class, right? It's, it's socialization, and their social class also makes a really big difference yes you know what yeah. what uh, strata these kids are coming from that is huge yes it really is and that that's why when you said make the expectations clear assume that the students don't know what to do so for example you were talking about what happens when you walk by the class and half the students are asleep and the you know it's the behavior is not being marked it's really important for the teacher the instructor to point out to a student, hey, excuse me, but you can't yawn without covering your mouth. Because the students don't know that, and the other students don't know that. And you don't have to do it in a really mean way. Right. But you have to point out, say, hey, you can't do that in my class. And it's the kid just is yawning. And maybe he comes from a family where the parents never taught him to cover right. his mouth. Right. Or right. is he yawned all through high school and no teacher ever said anything? And the, the, the Or he's just thing. really trying to tell me that I'm boring <laughs> and he's he knows he's, how to yeah. cover his mouth. Or he's, he's, he's hitting not your to. buttons. He's hitting your buttons. But uh, uh, the 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 key to that is uh, is that when you do explain these things, that you don't make the problem worse. Yeah. Okay. You you correct them. You say okay. You know you can't do somehow. You got something. Okay. You're doing this, and you really shouldn't do this. But how you do that and how you handle that 
can make a huge difference. I mean, you can you can change his life for the better. You can improve the whole class. You can get the whole class on your side, or you can alienate him and the rest of the class, and you're going to have just hell for the rest of the school year. Um, it's such a it's such a tricky thing, right? And it's there's no formula. Because you've got, it's one of those things you have to do, you know, spur the I, moment, I think there's a, a seat of your pants. Yeah? I think there's a formula, which is the third time that I've corrected you on the same thing, I am no longer required to be so patient. That's my formula. No, I'm talking about the first time. Okay. Yeah, the first time you, no, the first time it's no question. You have to be gentle but firm and clear and help the person understand what specifically they've done and why it's not acceptable. Don't you think? Yeah, but do you do it, just talk to them in English? Do you talk to them in Japanese? Do you uh, have a, do you do it with a stern face or a stern voice, just a moderately serious? Or do you, do you kid about it? I think I do all three. I do all three. Yeah, again, so there's no formula. It's all kind of free and it depends on who the kid is, what class it is, what school it is, all of that. And you need to kind of make that call on the fly. Yeah. I think, you know, you really got it, but there's, for example, let's use the eh. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you who are not in Japan, eh is basically the Japanese huh. And I think it famously grates everybody. Um, how would you do that? You say something to a student, the student comes in late, and you say, why are you late? And the student goes, eh? What do you do? It's, it's been such a long time. Um, really? It's been such I, a I long did... time since that's happened to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you, I'm so lucky. Well, you I'm see, so lucky. I'm, I've been really lucky that that hasn't happened, but because of... Uh... <laughs> This one school I'm working at this semester, it's totally, I'm not used to this at all. And that actually happened to me just the other day. So what would yeah. you do? When, when, when kids come in, even, well, when a kid comes in late, I don't confront them and ask them why they're late. I, I tell them, just like, you know, come to class, just, just don't bother anybody else. But what I will do is I will, again, I, I like to use the rest of the class because they're all there on time, right? And so the kid's walking in, and I'll make a hand gesture toward the kid. You know, just a thumb out. Look, look at this guy. Look at this guy. And the, the, the rest of the students will laugh. You got the class on your side, and the, the students themselves will put that pressure on that student mm. not to do that. Yeah, if you're, if you're in Again, that environment. Yeah. But in, yeah, it could be the other that. environment whereby everybody's rooting that the guy's late. There are those environments. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, it also makes it different who the student is. And this, this also is something that I haven't had to think about in, I just, for years. Um, but it was, for those of you teaching in those schools, um, a very useful strategy that worked for me um, when I found myself in front of a, a, let's call it, not necessarily a borderline hostile classroom. It's like, come in, it's okay. We're here. We dare you to teach us something, right? Well, you know, you kind of watch the class and you look, for, you look for the alpha dog. Say, which, which of these kids is everybody bouncing off of? Because th- that's, that's the nature of the society. It's hierarchical. In any class, there's going to be your alpha dogs and the, the kids are going to figure that out on the first day. It's made a little bit harder for you. But you look and find out who the, the leader is. And then you watch them. You watch them. 
and you wait for him to screw up. And when he screws up, you come down really hard on him. And everybody else then learns. <laughs> so, okay. Right. So the, we're not going to do, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you don't always have to be gentle and loving. Right. And again, this is one of those classes where from the, from the get go, you've got a, a, almost a hostile environment. So it's, you're already at a deficit, right? So you you're not you, got, you don't have that much to lose. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I I do something very similar, which is that, you know, once that person, the alpha dog person, or the person who let's say is putting out the biggest vibe in the class, mm. um, if there's ever a challenge, it's firm, direct, clear, and it's obvious that you will not want to do this a second time. And right. I'm not and, and speak, but I'm not speaking to him, mm. right? That's the point. Right. You're speaking to the whole class, right? Something else I wanted to toss out, Tony, is that when you're in these environments, and you you mentioned that how you handle something, the way you handle it, can have a drastic or dramatic effect on the classroom. I think handling how people handle late students makes a big difference. I know that there are teachers who, if you're more than 15 minutes late the teacher counts that as an absence do you know people who do that um i, th I have i have yeah yeah and it's interesting because i have one thing i say to a student whenever they come in late it's always thank you for coming mm. and yeah i remember you said that yeah that's yeah good and it has an incredible effect mm. um but you know when you're in these classes what do you do again and there are no hard, fast rules. At least we we haven't figured out the algorithm for them. Right. We haven't figured out exactly how do you make it into a science. But the usually, I think again, you have to think that wait, these are young people who might not or probably do not have the same understanding of what a classroom means that I do. And I have to articulate that clearly. I have to make sure that they understand that these are the rules that I think are in play. These are the expectations. This is what you can do. This is what you need to do to pass the class. And we're going to talk about this in the next episode, about that there are schools where all students do pass. Right? Teachers are under a lot of pr pressure yep. not to fail students. How... Do you get a student like that to actually learn when the student knows that if they meet the attendance requirement, they're going to pass? What does a teacher do? So there's a whole lot of different things that are going on. And I think the key is clear parameters. Make sure the students understand what you expect. Keep the class moving very quickly at a very fast pace. Use lots of games, lots of activities move the students around so they're always working with different students and pretty much i think the rule of thumb for me is if i whatever i would plan for a class that is in a pretty positive learning environment i need to create three times as many activities for a class that will that does not have such a positive attitude towards learning right. what do you think I like that, and I would just add, add to that um, consistency when you with your first with your parameters. Uh, yeah, that's the hardest um, part, isn't it? Yeah, me for me too. I screw it up all the time because yeah. sometimes it's like you're just too tired to fight. 
<laughs> it's like so just let it go right and that's and that's a mistake you shouldn't you know the consistency is really important as with kids i guess i don't know i don't have any but uh really important for uh the students uh to you know get a again clear idea okay this is okay this is not okay this is the line and it, it the line means something so and then maybe the other thing is also um uh, of course not this doesn't apply to you or i but um at the same time to be realistic with your expectations um it's not a university in a foreign country in england or the united states um i know a lot of teachers here who have uh, or a few teachers um their whole career and never really got it that the japanese university classroom is a different beast from an american university classroom um and you got to be realistic about what you can do i think um you're there's certain things that you're just not going to be able to do and you gotta you gotta learn what's possible yeah i think that i would say completely agree with you that you have to learn what's possible that's a real good way of putting it you have to adjust but whatever you do there's that little part of you in the back of your mind that you cannot give up at all mm -hmm. on high expectations i'm not saying it's realistic i'm not i don't know think it's even reasonable but you've got to still somehow dig deep and keep that part of you which is that all these students all my students can achieve greatness and i'm not saying that i achieve it i accomplish it in even a small percent but oh i yeah you know what i'm saying there's that little part there's that and, little um, thing you have to maintain yeah, to, to underscore what you to, to support what you're saying, what I've got right now, uh, and maybe we kind of start thinking about winding up, but um, I've got a school uh, which is pretty high level generally, and the students in the in the spectrum of things at this school are toward the top. Um, and for the few years, I haven't been having great success. Um, the, the schools, the, the classes are only one semester classes, so I don't have the time or the luxury to, to build things out. And there's lots of other institutional oddities that hinder me or I feel hindered by. Um, but um, as you talked about the expectations this year, for, I don't know, for whatever reason, I must have been in a bad mood or something. You uh, hit them, <laughs> hit them, hit them with really, you know, with a with a different, much higher set of expectations. So the kids that have this this year that I'm teaching, this semester, they're doing maybe double the work what the kids did last year. And th they're rising to it. They're rising to the expectations. They're they're producing. And I'm kind of kind of wowed by that. <laughs> um I, that's not what I instinctively would have done before. I I've I've noticed myself kind of sliding toward giving up and I don't know what it was that made me hit them with with all this work but um the results are promising at this point it's only you know the, the middle of the semester but um i'm kind of surprised by that so yes you're right about the expectations yeah it's tough it's hard um, again i'm lucky i teach um, at a place and i also get to really learn um about the students and work with them over a three-year period of time and what you're talking about with that those semester classes right are mm -hmm. so difficult because you know as 
I said, it takes me three weeks, three classes to train my students to work. To in train them what you want, what they need to do. Right, to, to how to work in a class. So for anyone out there who's listening, who's running a program, is preparing a program, would you please, please coordinate the learning skills <laughs> so that the student, all the teachers, all the students are getting an opportunity so that they can get the learning skills and study skills they need and they know how to use the the technical the technological tools that will be used in the classroom and then I don't have to teach that every three weeks <laughs> it would be so nice and if anyone at Mext is out there you know the recent move to like 15, 14 to 15 weeks um, what a wonderful thing it would be if instead they had used one that first week on just study skills and orientation and what and behavior and manners and 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 what a more what a much more useful um week that would be i i hear here <laughs> choir you hear agree. me yeah uh, exactly no one, no, no, no one that matters is listening to this right is that how to well we're going to get into the difference between school cultures from the admin side, and we can cover this. Mm, that's next time. But maybe that's a good time, pl point to wrap up. Yeah. I think we've talked a little bit about the different cultures, how they vary, maybe what you can do. Again, how do you adapt to the school, the classroom that's a little more difficult? Because it's really true. Sometimes I, I tell my students, I said, you know, anybody could teach at this university. <laughs> right you have classes you have schools like that where the students are just so yeah. good right yeah i've said that to somebody listening saying, you know if you if you got a problem with these students you got a problem yeah, if you can't <laughs> teach here, you can't teach anywhere <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but that's not true it's, it's, it's a lot of it is also fit but mm -hmm. that's beside the point so let's wrap it up yeah and just one little just a little shot for my students who do this because i do I, charles i have students who listen to the to the podcast um, oh, yes, students I'm talking who about... listen to the podcast, you should hear what we talk about before and after. We should hear before and after. Show. <laughs> well, anyway, students who listen to podcast, all these great students, I'm talking about you. <laughs> right. I think the students who, again, it would be nice if the students who were not having such positive experiences could listen to the podcast and sure. hear what you or I have to say. Mm -hmm. Because I think this, some, I'm just going to continue for a second, Tony. I just want to run sure. with this. Is this is what I struggle with, and this is where I f always fall down, is trying to communicate to the students that I care. No matter what, I really do care, and I want you to succeed. And I just bomb in how I communicate that. You know, mm. it either comes across mm. as frustration or as being overly strict. But the idea is that we ha I have to find some way so the students know, hey, I'm doing this because... I really believe you can learn. Otherwise, I would just show videos for 90 minutes. Hmm. So I got to figure out that, how to be better at that. Thanks. Hmm. That's um, a good takeaway for me from today's podcast. Good, good, good. All right. So we are two teachers talking. I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we're at twoteacherstalking.com, two teachers talking on iTunes, two teachers talking at gmail.com. And. You can figure out the rest if it's Skype or anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <Just laughs> and follow, follow your gut. Yeah. Yes. And remember for our listeners that we have now moved to our one podcast a month format. Mm. So please do not um, get Don't upset. Panic. Right? Right. That it's not coming out every two weeks. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, we're on a new format. And 
that should give us a little bit more time to get ready for our next topic, which will be school cultures and talking about just the admin side and the other teachers and what's happening in the <laughs> lunchroom. That's, That's going to be a fun one. Yes. Okay, so Tony, you have a good week, okay? You too. Okay, bye.